everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Gluck, and today it is a How I Got Here version of the podcast with Mr. Steve Matchett, currently of Fox Sports, where he is a commentator for the Formula E races that they have. But you probably know him more for his work in F1. He used to be a major part of the broadcast team for Speed Vision and then the uh, Speed Broadcast once they were acquired by Fox and then later NBC for five years before that contract went to ESPN. Uh, He's also a well-known author, has written several books about his life experience in F1, which included two driver's championships with Michael Schumacher at Benetton and a constructor's championship, which he's very proud of, in 1995 quite a fascinating story, fascinating career. I was very lucky to be able to speak with him at the recent Formula E race in Brooklyn, New York City. This is one of the longer How I Got Here interviews I've done this year, but I I really thought he had such a fascinating story that I wanted to make sure we did it justice here. So I hope you will enjoy this story time with Steve Matchett. Let's hear about how he got to where he is today. All right, everybody, I'm here with Steve Matchett. Steve, this is such an honor. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, so um, it's fine. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm very interested in, in your, your career story. Of course, um, personally, I'm a little bit late to the motorsports world, so uh, I only have known you as a broadcaster and a, a great voice. Um, can you tell me, you know, growing up, uh, was, was racing and, and working on cars a goal for you? Was that, was that your boyhood dream? No, it was uh, it was most certainly not. Okay. Really, I grew up in the middle of central England, uh, not very far away from the Donington racetrack. Okay. Actually, and we're standing right now in the Formula E paddock here in New York, and the Formula E main uh, office, if you like, in England is at the Donington racetrack, very really? close to where I grew up. So there's a bit of symmetry there. Yeah. Yeah. So w- we had a, Don- a racetrack very close to us, but my family had no involvement or interest in racing at all okay and I never went to a motor race for many years and what got me involved in the automotive industry uh, was a friend of mine a school friend when we were both of us trying to decide what we should do when we left school and back in England in the 1970s it seems strange now in comparison to the United States and the college system but back in England in the 1970s college and university were were foreign words to us. Hmm. We had no introduction to university at all. It was was not long after the end of the Second World War, realistically, 70, 75, um, and the comprehensive school education in England at that time were all for pushing people towards the trades. You were going to be a plumber or a brickier a mason, or, a, or a, a, something to do with electronics, or as I say, plumbing, or you would end up in the automotive industries, that sort of thing, you know. It was, a very, it was just a very different time. You could tell the whole, the whole push of the government was get people working again, right? Huh. And um, so a friend of mine had an interest in cars, had an interest in, um, in, in mechanics, and he had a little Austin Mini, an original Mini, you know, one of the, oh, wow. the late 50 Minis. And, and he said to me one day, you know, if you want to come down the house, I'm going to be working and playing on the car. Come down and see what it's all about. And that kind of caught my interest. But before then, I, it was a complete sort of foreign subject to me. Huh. Um, so I, I became an indentured apprentice. I looked around for opportunities 
to be a, a mechanic because it would sort of be kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah. You know, you're young, you're 16, you're not really sure what the world's all about, right? You know, and um, so this was a profession. It was something to do. And um, we were very fortunate also in the nearby town where I grew up to have a Ferrari dealer. Really? There's about three in the country at the time. One oh. in the south, one in the north, and one right in the Midlands, the heart of the industrial Midlands, which is where I was. Uh, called Graypool Motors, which is a very now become a very prestigious Ferrari dealership, and uh, so I used to work at a little Mazda dealer just down the road, literally just down the road from the Ferrari dealer, uh, and I enjoyed the work as a as an apprentice mechanic very well. I liked the work. I was you know to remove ego out of it was actually very good at it. I, the theory side of it and the practical side of it gelled with me very easily, and all of a sudden I thought you know I kind of get this. You know, in a way I was. Like most things in life, I'm really self-taught in most things, even being an indentured apprentice, to, to, to get to grips with the theoretical side. I would just take, I don't know, more time than some of the others. You know, I just enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed, sure. the, I enjoyed the study side of it as much as the practical side. So anyway, go back full circle. Uh, there was a Ferrari dealer, Grey Paul Motors, and I applied and I applied and I applied to them. And I think eventually they just got bored with me right <laughs> and gave me the opportunity. Wow. So I started working on Ferrari. How old were you about this time? Uh, be about 26. Oh, okay. So you'd been in I'd it been for, a while, for a while. been around for a while, yeah. And I'd worked for a BMW dealer as well. Uh, but it was really Ferrari that caught my attention. Just loved the idea of those V12s. You know, exotic, European exotic cars are, as a young kid, obviously very appealing. And as a mechanic, even more so. Hmm. I mean, it's like Aladdin's cave. You go inside a Ferrari dealer... Uh, and of course, at the time, I mean, it's still pretty true universally. You know, Ferrari Ferrari owners have got quite a lot of cash, so there's no shortage. <laughs> of, you know, you can you, you you can keep working on their cars, and uh, they seem quite happy with the bill at the end of it. You know, because back in the 80s, by that time, the car had increased more in value than the money that we'd spent on the servicing, etc. You know, so yeah. it was a kind of a win-win situation. So I I became very interested in doing restoration work on Ferrari and service on Ferrari and. You know, so I cut my teeth really on Ferrari with 308s, the carburetor cars and the injected cars, then the 328s that came after that, and the Testarossas, the flat 12 boxes. And to, you know, to take an engine out of a Testarossa just to change the cam belts is a fairly surreal experience, but it was all part of the servicing program, huh. you know. Wow. That, so that got me involved in, in automotive engineering. And of course, from there, you can see the connection to F1, Ferrari's F1 team. I knew I was never going to join, you know, the uh, Scuderia Ferrari's uh, F1 team, but that got me interested in in Formula One, very much so. And then I just started applying to teams until one of them gave me a position, which was Benetton. So you're you're sitting at these teams, and or you're sitting at the dealership, and you're mm. like, hey, you know what? I, I feel like I I'm pretty good at this, and I could potentially work on race cars. Why not? And so you're, it's just a matter of somebody giving you a chance at that point? Yes, I've always been a big believer in if you're, you know, sensible, practical, uh, and have common sense, which a surprisingly large number of people do, do not, uh -huh. as, as, as videos on the internet are testament to. <laughs> right, but if you are born with basic common sense, you have a practical skill and a desire to do something, I am a firm believer that all of us are capable of doing whatever we want to do in life mm -hmm. I really do believe that and um, so that's why I was never afraid of undertaking bigger and bigger challenges at the Ferrari dealer so whenever the next big rebuild came around 
I would volunteer to do it. That's not, I don't, again, I don't mean that sound egotistical. I was just keen to do it, you know. Um, and so I, I, I had the same thought about Formula One. I've had no race experience, but I, by this time I understood how, how engineering worked, how cars are put together. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to me you're always looking for the next sort of step in life. And having reached in the road car world working for Ferrari, where do you go next? You know, can't you, then you start to take sort of sideways steps or you put the wrenches down and you move into the managerial side of it. And that didn't really appeal. But working on F1 cars did appeal. And it comes with the added attraction with world travel and it's all very glamorous when you're a young man. Sure. You know, so what was wrong with that? Nothing, right? So I applied to every team that was English-based, which is pretty much all of them. Just sending your resume? Just send them out. And I said, you know, um, know, I just laid it out that I've not had any racing experience, but I'm very keen. I'm working with Ferrari. I've had transverse gearbox experience, which was something that was just breaking into the world of F1 back then. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, to cut a long story short, uh, Lotus offered me a position, uh, which I turned down because... Benetton offered me a position and I just looked at those two companies and Lotus a huge name obviously very worldwide famous name in motorsport but I just got the impression and it turned out to be the case that Lotus were on the wane and starting to go down and it looked to me like Benetton were just starting to come up I see and I thought this would be a more of an exciting chance to see something grow um yeah, so so Nigel Stepney who was then the chief mechanic at, uh, at Benetton took me on as a position of working on gearboxes in the sub-assembly department. And so you you get hired there, you get your foot in the door, essentially. Right, exactly. And it was it just, at that point, a matter of proving your skills to get more and more responsibility? To a degree, it was. But, you know, again, when we just said, I'm always prepared to try something new, I'm, I'm always up for that. Nigel, at the time, carbon brakes were just getting started in Formula 1. I mean, they'd been around for a while, but now they're really ramping up. The, the, all the teams could suddenly see the great performance advantage of having these very lightweight brakes on the car. Not just it was, Carbon brakes were not just about the brake efficiency, but also they were very light. And so when you're dealing with unsprung weights, there was, there was a great advantage to that. And so, they, you know, people were now, people in the teams were starting to see the big advantage of carbon brakes. Uh, but the, the, the technical problem with the brakes at that time, they did tend to um, crack and, and just small, very small fissures would start to appear down the carbon material. Wow. And you, you had to keep your eye on them. They were terrific, but you had to watch them. And if you didn't watch them, you could, they would eventually lead to a brake failure. And Nigel, as chief mechanic, as chief mechanic, Nigel Stemmer, as chief mechanic, was looking after all the carbon brakes as well as all his other responsibilities, and he was finding it just too much. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to have somebody from the factory take that department over for him and look after the carbon brakes with the race team. Well, you could look at that in one sense and say, well, this is a pretty minor position on the race team. It's looking after the brakes. You know, it's how exciting is that? But for me. I just thought this is a way to get onto the race team. It's the next step. And some of the other guys I was working with were absolutely adamant they did not want to work with brakes. They wanted to be gearbox mechanics. I see. And so uh, Nigel asked everybody else of seniority over me whether or not they wanted this position. And everyone turned it down. And I put my hand up and said, 
I'll have a go at it, Nigel. Wow. Nobody else is going to do it. I'll help you. And I think Nigel really liked that. He liked the idea that I was prepared to have a go, even if it was looked on as somewhat of a menial position on the team. But I was prepared to try it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so instantly I went from being factory based in England uh, to, to joining, him, joining him on the race team. And wow. off we went around the world. And, you know, I, I looked after the brakes and I uh, had a, a few crosswords with engineers who were insistent that brakes were okay when they clearly were not okay. And um, Nigel was, was impressed with the fact that I wasn't going to be trampled underfoot by their seniority. And he appreciated the work that I did for him in that first year in 1990. Uh, and so at the end of 1990, uh, they were looking for a race team mechanic on one of the cars and Nigel offered it to me. So it was just step after step after step, you know. Great good luck and good fortune. Uh, accidental good luck, most of my career has been based on that. So that got me, now I was working on one of the race cars on the race team. Wow. Yeah. And so was it four years after that, just a four year short time that you won the constructors title? Uh, we won that in 95. 95. And we won our first uh, driver's championship with Michael in 94. Okay. We really should have had the constructors in 94 as well, but that's a whole other podcast for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Why we didn't manage to achieve that. So yes, driver's championship in 94, constructors championship in 95. Um, uh, and it was hard work, but I just loved it. I loved every, I, I loved the teamwork. I've always been a big team player. Mm -hmm. I loved the idea of being part of something bigger than oneself, you know? And uh, working with the guys, working with the team, traveling with the team under pressure and the all-night work. Yes, it's exhausting, but you realize that you're, you're working towards something. You're working towards something bigger. And... Uh, I enjoyed all of that. So, but at the same time, I'm already now looking for the next step within myself because I've always been a big fan of literature. Always been a big reader. Always as as a kid, and I always wanted to write. But uh, as we just touched on at the start of our interview here, in the 70s, comprehensive education in England, and we were not being pushed towards university. Mm -hmm. Nobody was uh, giving me any encouragement to pick up thy pen and write. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. Right. But I still enjoyed doing it. So I was still writing, you know, sort of little stories and, and uh, diary entries. And, I, you know, I was keen to keep writing, keep keen to keep reading. And working on the race team, I just suddenly... You know, it was, it was like a, an epiphany, if you like. I just thought, you know, nobody's writing about what's happening within the teams. All the books on motorsports, certainly in F1, it's all about the drivers. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Journalists write about what they get access to, and journalists have access to drivers, and the drivers are the heroes of the sport. No problem with that at all. But I did think there was an unexplored niche uh, about what's happening behind those closed doors. Absolutely. Who are the chief mechanics? Who are the mechanics? What are they doing on a daily basis? And and so in 94, while we're fighting tooth and nail with Williams for the driver's championship, I write my first book, Life in the Fast Lane. During the time, I mean, I have no idea I had the time to do it now. Looking back on it, you know, <laughs> I was exhausted to begin with. And I'm, you know, it, I, I was writing this book from sort of midnight until 3.30 in the morning, grabbing wow. a couple of hours sleep. But when you're a young man, it's a different, whole different thing, right? But so anyway, I worked on my first book in 94, managed to get a publisher and got the book published. And uh, yeah, that, that moved me on to the next stage. So um, when did you leave? What year did you leave um, the race team? It was 98. 98. 98 yeah so at that point are you like okay um 
I just I just want to be a writer like full time, and and this is going to be my life. Yes, that's pretty much exactly how it was. I mean, I was enjoying myself on the race team, but I also realised this is a young man's profession,、mm-hmm. and there are two options really. Of one is making Formula One work for you, or you know, Formula One will eventually. Kill you.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll force you out of the industry just through exhaustion and fatigue. And I didn't want to be around forever doing Formula One. And we'd won the constructors' championship. So what do you do after winning the constructors' championship? Well, sure, you can go for two or three or try and eventually beat Ferrari's now sixteen. Right? You know, yeah, that is, that's that's a, that's an entire lifetime spent in the pit lane.、Um, I very much enjoyed writing. First book was published. I was being offered more and more. Magazine work through Autosport and F1 Racing,、uh, on track in the States, just little bits, you know. So I made the decision to quit Formula One, retire, and try to make a career as a freelance writer. I really wanted to be an author, but I know that magazine work, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, uh, money, bringing out to pay the bills, magazine work is infinitely pays infinitely better than writing books. Hmm. Unless you have to be J.K. Rowling, for example. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But there's not many J.K. Rowlings out there versus all the other authors that are not making much money. So to pay the bills,、uh, I quit Benetton. I looked around and pondered what I should do. Realised that England was too expensive、uh, to go from a steady salary to effectively nothing.、Uh, but France at the time was much, much, much more economical、uh, in terms of housing. So. Uh, I did the Peter Mayall thing, which was the classic sort of romantic image of going to France, buying a rundown farm that hadn't been lived in for forty years. Wow! Had no running water, no electricity, no、really? drainage. It was just effectively a barn. And I started restoring the house and bought it for next to nothing. Even the locals in the little village didn't want it because <laughs> they thought it was too far gone. Wow! <laughs> so when I arrived as this stranger in this village. They looked at me like you know I was I was from another planet, literally, because I would spend all day just banging away at this house, you know, trying to repair the roof and trying to repair the walls and install rudimentary plumbing and rudimentary electrics into the house, and at the same time writing magazine articles and working on my next book, The Mechanic's Tale.、Hmm. That's fascinating.、Mm. So、um, once you、uh, were writing for a while, how did the opportunity to TV? Ever come about, and did you ever see yourself as somebody that would even be on TV? No, absolutely not. It, it never. It was never in my、uh, future to work in television. My future, in my own mind, was to finish the restoration on the house, finish book two, the mechanic's tale, and then hopefully work on book three and book four and book five, but stay in France.、Mm-hmm. It's a very remote corner of France between Cognac and Bordeaux, so it had obvious appeals to be there. You know, Cognac's famous for one thing, and Bordeaux's only famous for wine.、Uh-huh. Beautiful country, but very re- remote and quiet. But for me, I loved all of that. Just going back full circle, my childhood was spent in a very quiet little English village near Donington Racetrack, but there was we were right in the middle of nowhere, effectively. I see. So that sort of isolation was always appealing to me. I always loved the idea of France. Had a romantic idea of France. You know, sure. The wine and the cheese and the sun and the relaxed life and all of that was appealing. So I was living that. Um, you know, it was a very sort of hand-to-mouth existence. It was an awful lot of sort of surplus.、Um, I mean, I can remember one occasion of selling a magazine article and being so thrilled, I went out and bought some wood for the fire. You know, <laughs> you know, that, no it was way! That, it was that sort of existence, but it's fun. You know, it's fun. It's fun. Anyway, how did I get in TV?、Uh, Mr. Frank Wilson, 
uh, who was at the time working for Speed Vision, mm -hmm. uh, he, he managed to get hold of my email address from, I think it was OnTrack magazine. Uh, and he was stuck for an announcer in 2000 for the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, David Hobbs and Sam Posey were going to be in Le Mans. And it left Bob Varsha on his own in the booth. I see. And so Frank Wilson, who was the producer of the Formula One coverage uh, in the States, was scratching his head thinking, what are we going to do about this? And uh, so he, he'd read my first two books. And he'd read some magazine work that I'd done. And he said, well, you know, Steve offers a different perspective. We've never seen this sort of side of the sport covered like this before. Typically, uh, motorsport announcers are all former drivers. Mm -hmm. It's been like that seemingly forever. But there's never been anyone that said, well, the cars are built this way for this reason. And look what's happening now in the pit stop. And, oh, that's a bad pit stop because this happened. Mm -hmm. That kind of got glossed over. And so one dark and stormy night, I was literally a dark and stormy night in the middle of nowhere in, in France, I was just tapping away on the laptop and an email pinged onto my screen from Frank, who I didn't know at all. Wow. I didn't know at all. Just out of the blue. I thought it was a joke. I thought huh. it was some, some old friend from Benetton winding me up, you know. Frank <laughs> said, hey, we're stuck for an announcer. Would you mind flying over? Would you consider it? And uh, just help us out for one race. And again, as we've touched on several times now, I'm not afraid to try something new. Sure, what's the worst that's going to happen? You don't want to offer me any more work, I go back to France again. It's <laughs> not a problem. Um, so that was it. I went over and helped them out for that race. And um, yeah, 20 years later, pretty much, here we are having a chat. Wow, that's, that's remarkable. And so um, you moved it from France at some point. Mm. Um, was that tough to give up that lifestyle? Where, yes. where do you live now? In Charlotte. In Charlotte, yeah. Yeah. So... When we f went, that first race that I did with, with Frank Wilson and Speed uh, was from their Stanford-based studios just north of where we are now in New York, in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked, uh, but I was still living in France, so every race I would, I would fly across the Atlantic. Commuting. That's, you know, commuting. <laughs> that soon became a, a long and tiresome commute. I bet. Because it's not, you know, the thing that always, thinking back of it now, it wasn't just the length of the flight, which is, say, six or eight hours. But from door to door, from leaving the hotel in Stamford to opening the door of my old farmhouse in France was 23 and a half hours. Because I was in the middle of nowhere, you right. know. So it wasn't just a matter of catching the flight to London or Paris and then commuting down. It was then, so if I'd fly to Paris, I would get off at, um, uh, disembark in the north of Paris at Charles de Gaulle Airport, which is in the north. And I had to go catch effectively the metro right through Paris to get to the south of Paris, to Montparnasse train station, and from there, wait for about four hours for the next TGV, the fast oh. train, to get on the train which would take me down towards Bordeaux. Oh <laughs> you know, my like, gosh. Like, if I knew I was going to be working in TV, I would never have moved to this remote part right. of France, but life doesn't work that way, you know? But anyway, so after a period of years, um, Speedvision was acquired by Fox, and Fox wanted to move and relocate everybody down to Charlotte for mm -hmm. the NASCAR connection. Um, and so I spent the next 12 years or so working down in Charlotte. But at one point, I said, you know, enough. I'm going to buy some property over here. So I had to sell the house in France. It was, it, was, um, it was a tough time to do it, but there comes a point where you just know that life is leading you somewhere else. Yeah. You know? It just does, you know, yeah. Yeah, you come to a series of crossroads in life, and it's do you turn left, do you turn right, and so. Uh, and I'm very happy I do live in the states. I love the life here. I certainly miss the life in France, 
but I love the life in here, and Charlotte's a terrific place to live. Yeah. It's getting busier and busier all the while, and more and it's more people growing, yeah. move in. And there was a time when there were no road jams, but boy, I tell you now, <laughs> Charlotte is getting very, very busy. I, I find now, if I'm on the roads in Charlotte, I have to be on the road about 10 o'clock in the morning. It's fairly free. Or you have to be on the road about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But any other time, forget it. You don't, you don't, you I don't hope you don't have to take I-77. Well, fortunately, I'm in the south of Charlotte. Okay. I'm around Lake Wiley. Oh, okay. And I, can, I personally cannot imagine how awful it must be commuting up and down that corridor from Lake Norman down in towards Charlotte into the airport and then up. A lot, a lot of the NASCAR guys do that. But, boy, that road needs, needs a lot of work. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned that you're, you're somebody that's constantly sought out the next thing and, and to challenge yourself in your life. Um, is there a next thing at this point, or is this sort of like life is good at this point and you're you're happy doing this well i mean life is good but i'm getting older i mean you know i'm 56 now i'm beginning to slow down sure um and i i enjoyed working with fox and speed vision i enjoyed very much the five years when i was covering formula one with nbc and if the deal nbc hadn't have expired and the deal had been done with espn mm-hmm. well, i would probably still be working with nbc covering formula one now you know? yeah but that's come to a, that's come to its natural end, and as soon as it did come to an end, we just mentioned Frank Wilson. He was straight on the telephone to me again. Hey, Steve, we must go out for a beer. We've got this interesting new thing we're dealing with, Formula E. Come and have a look at it. You know, hence hence here we are today. You know, okay. I don't like this. I like what I see about Formula E. Um, yeah. I, I still enjoy the technology of the cars as much as the racing. We shot some technical features yesterday looking around the Gen 2 car that Formula E are going to be using from next year or next season. And the season kicks off in December, which still kind of confuses me a little bit, but maybe yeah. it's because I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> you know. But I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the cars. I enjoy the features. And um, as long as the guys are happy for me to indulge my passion of looking around cars and speaking to a camera and telling that story, I'm happy to do it. But at the same time, I continue to write. I've just written book number four, which is a selection of short stories called These Desired Things. Cool. Uh, so it's a first move, a first deliberate move away from motorsport writing. Because I feel that side of my life is beginning to come to a close. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural phase. I'm not upset by it. It's just the way life works. And I've also been doing audiobook recordings of the earlier works as well. And I love doing audiobook narration. I like that work very much. And if there was more opportunity to do that, I just recorded uh, The Mechanic's Tower with Tantor Media up in Connecticut, up in Old Saybrook. I had a blast of a time doing that with the guys up there. Uh, they seem very happy with the finished product. And so we had a chat. I said, hey, if anything else comes up where you need an English accent, I'd be more than happy to consider doing more audiobook narration. I like That'd be that. really cool. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. So, you know, when you ask me what does the future hold, am I happy doing the same thing? I think that's where it's going. I still like to be around motorsport. I'm more than happy always to help Frank Wilson out and the guys. Frank's been a huge inspiration and a help to me over the years. Um, so I'm happy to do that. I, I adore writing, so I'll still continue to do that. And, and the audiobook narration work, if that continues, I'd be a very happy man. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story. Absolutely fascinating. I think you should be nominated for most interesting man in the world if the <laughs> Dos Equis guy yeah, well, needs, needs a replacement. Much. But thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.
All right, everybody. So there you have it. Quite a cool story there with Steve Matchett and Frank Wilson, who he mentions several times during the interview, actually helped me set up this interview along with Eric Arneson from Fox Sports PR. But Frank Wilson, I got to chat with him along with Steve there afterwards when we were just shooting the bull a little bit. And it was kind of funny. Frank's version of the story where he emailed Steve is that he emails them and, and, you know, lines up a broadcaster and then realizes, wait a minute, I've never heard this guy talk in my entire life. I, I don't know if this guy has any sort of speaking skills or anything. So in a moment of panic, uh, a couple weeks before they actually did the broadcast, he hopped on a phone with Steve, called him in France, and uh, just to sort of reassure himself that, oh, wait, this guy actually can talk, because otherwise there was a chance he was going to bring some guy who had never broadcast a race before, and he didn't know you know, what his voice sounded like or anything, and uh, that could have been a disaster. Actually, it worked out quite well, uh, as you know. So that Formula E weekend and that whole experience, including talking to Steve, was really one of the highlights of my year, just to go do something different and new like that. And I honestly could not have done that without my patrons over at patreon.com. And so I want to make sure I thank some of those people this week. And those include Joe Cotter, Vicki Simpson, Marie DeVario, Paula Buck, and Dustin Tanner, who I just got to chat with last week at the New Hampshire tweet up. So thank you to all of them, as well as all of you who are patrons. I know I say it every week, but I hope it doesn't get old. It's definitely not old for me because it really means a lot that your support is able to get me to these races as well as make a living. So thank you. Coming up on the next edition of the Untitled Jeff Gluck podcast, it's going to be a post-race podcast after the Pocono race. However, I will not be in Pocono. I'm staying in Portland, Oregon this week, so I'm planning to meet up with one of my NASCAR friends here in the Portland area. We will watch the race together and then talk to you about it afterwards, give our impressions from afar. That will be posted Sunday night. And then next week, it will be a 12 questions with AJ Almendinger, followed by the next How I Got Here interview, which is with Jose Castillo. If you've ever been to one of the SMI track races He's the guy not only on the video board who is doing a lot of the pre-race MC type stuff, but also is the main man there on the trackside live stage, something that SMI has resurrected here in the last year or so. So he's interacting with all the drivers, playing games, things like that. And I wanted to ask how he got to where he is today. Anyway, that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast.